This is from the Hekiganoku, case 98. Tian pings travel on foot. Introduction. Collecting the causes, producing the result. Completing the beginning, completing the end. Face to face, there is nothing hidden. But fundamentally, I have never explained. If there is suddenly someone who comes forth and says, all summer we've been asking for instructions, why have you never explained? Wait until you've awakened, then I will tell you. Tell me, do you think that this is avoidable, avoidance of direct confrontation? Or do you think it has some other merit? To test, I cite this case to see. The main case. When the master of Tianping was traveling on foot, he went to see Master Ji Huan. He always would say to himself and others, do not say you understand Buddhist teachings. I cannot find a single person who can quote a saying. One day, Ji Huan saw him from a distance and called him by his name, Tsung Yi. Tianping raised his head. Ji Huan said, wrong. Ping went two or three steps. Yuan again said, wrong. Ping approached. Yuan said, these two wrongs just now, were they my wrongs or your wrongs? Ping said, my wrongs. Yuan said, wrong. Ping gave up. Yuan said, stay here for the summer and wait for me to discuss these two wrongs with you. But Ping immediately went away. Some years later, when he was an abbot of a temple, he said to his community, when I was traveling on foot, I was blown by the wind of events to Ji Wan's place. Twice in a row he said wrong and tried to keep me there over the summer to wait for him to deal with me. I did not say it was wrong then. When I set out for the south, I already knew it was wrong. The verse. Followers of the Zen house like to be scornful. Having studied till their bellies are full, they cannot put it to use. How lamentable, laughable, old Tian Ping. After all, he said at the outset, it was regrettable to go travel on foot. Wrong, wrong. Jiran's pure wind suddenly melts him. So, a Zazenkai is a traditional way, traditional upaya in our practice to intensify what we practitioners do every day when we step back from our daily activities, sit down to practice Zazen. And because of that, we need to see Zazenkai as an extension of our daily practice rather than a standalone event. Which means that the daily sitting practice affects the way we practice during Zazenkai or Sashin. And the way we function and practice during a Zazenkai or Sashin is affecting our daily practice. Instead of chopping it up to, now it's a Zazenkai, it begins and ends, and now it's my daily practice, it begins and ends, and now I attend to my other activities, which again begin and end. Everything affects everything. When we talk about, as I mentioned this morning, we talk about seamless practice. And seamless means never beginning, never ending. And so if we wish to deepen our practice, we need to examine the quality of our zazen. Right? And look at the intention we raise every time we park our butts on the cushion. 
every time we are about to sit. What are the intentions we, we raise? Or do we raise any intentions? You know, after maybe the beginning, we do after practicing for a while, it becomes it can become automatic. Right? We most of us may be sitting at the same time every day. And after a while, zazenkais become also, or can become also somewhat automatic. We know how to function. We've been doing it before, done it before. And what does that do to raising the intention? What does that do to the deepening process? How can we practice seamlessness at the same time, practice anew? as if never before. In terms of seamlessness, Zazen does not have a beginning and an end. And it goes beyond what we call a period of sitting. Whether we call it that or we call it one day Zazenkai, Multiple day sashin goes beyond you, beyond sitting on a cushion at the zendo on Sunday at one. All that has to be seen or has to be realized, recognized as seamless. You know, what we call Zazen offers us a window to a gapless reality that reveals that you, Kushan, Zendo, one o'clock, Sunday, all that inseparable. As long as our attention is fixated on dualistic thinking, right? We, we chop it up. Of course, we chop it up because that's how we function. But as long as our attention is set on that and we create something out of that, it's very difficult and almost impossible to recognize that the truth is it's not chopped up. There is no beginning. There is no end. There is no home and there is no outside of home. As I mentioned in last week's stage show, we really have to call off the search. Right? Because a search also has a before and after, actually has before, during, and after in our minds. Before I decided to set foot on that path, while I am on that path, and when I think I will arrive, or where I think I will arrive. That's one of the classic ways we, we separate, we create a chopped up reality. So to really experience seamlessness, we have to, first of all, see that we are doing that. Recognize that this is happening. And then take the attention away from that to a different kind of experience. Feeling, experiencing, sensing that which unites at all times. So to put down the backpack, the one that contains everything we know about ourselves, everything we think about ourselves, everything we know about the world, along with everything we don't know, or whatever we think we don't know about ourselves, about the world. And to put down this heavy load and to trust, definitely to trust that just this is it. Justice. 
No leaving, no arriving, as we just chanted, Hakuin Song of Zazen. You know, we chant all these things, all these words are, we, we, maybe we chant for a while, we understand, okay, well, it means such and such or so and so. But the difference between understanding and feeling it is night and day. How do we take what we understand and apply it if we claim we understand? How do we use it? How do we live it? rather than leaving it behind and getting back to it next time we go back to Zazen. And the Indogens Fukan Zazengi, instructions for Zazen, universal instructions for Zazen, he said, cast away all involvement and seize all affairs. Do not think good or bad. Do not administer pros and cons. Is that what we do in our zazen? To be perfectly honest with ourselves, right? Is that what we do? These are the basic instructions of our practice. He's not saying we don't experience it. He's just saying, do not do that. While you're not doing that, you are experiencing a mind that does all that. But what is the difference between not doing something and doing something? Not doing something and experiencing it or being swept away by it and going along. Do not think good or bad, do not administer pros and cons. Seize all the movement of the conscious mind. The gauging of all thoughts and views have no designs on becoming a Buddha. Zazen has nothing to do with sitting or lying down. Think of not thinking. How do you think not thinking? Non-thinking. This is itself the essential art of Zazen. The Zazen I speak of, he says, is not learning meditation. Of course, it's just hearing it, right? It negates, right from the get-go, it negates what we, the way we think or what we think we're doing here or what we may think meditation is about. The zazen I speak of is not learning meditation. It is simply the Dharma gate of repose and bliss, the practice realization, hyphenated, practice realization of totally culminated enlightenment. The practice of enlightenment. The practice of being one with, be merged as all things. The practice of losing ourselves totally and then finding what's always been there. And he continues to say, it is the manifestation of ultimate reality. Traps and snares can never reach it. Once its heart is grasped, you're like a dragon gaining the water, like a tiger taking to the mountains. For you must know that just there, in Zazen, the right Dharma is manifesting itself, and that from the first, from the first, which means for the first second, we turn to that. Dullness and distraction are struck aside. That's not what we experience. But what he's talking about is what it is, and then for us to recognize that this is the intention we have to raise, recognizing that that's the way it is. Now, how do I match that.
Is that what we're doing? Or do we bring a lot of pros and cons? Well, you know, it's some time to think about stuff so I can figure out the plan for tomorrow. What am I going to say when I go back to work? How am I going to deal with my kids, my spouse, my whatever? Because if we do that, and we do it quite often, it's not just a waste of time, it's... As long as we do that, we are actually under the assumption that at some point I will do something else. Later on, right? Especially Zazenka. Well, I got plenty of periods. I can use a couple. And then before we know it, the Zazenka ends. We look back and what have we done with it? What are we rejecting when we prefer our thoughts and emotions and memories and our stories? I mean, he's saying it right away, from the beginning. Right? This is it. This is the, the bliss, the Dharma gate of repose and bliss, the practice realization of totally culminated enlightenment. And that's what we reject. And that's the strange thing. We reject that because we're looking for that. But later. Now, Dogen's simple instructions actually are designed to thrust us into the experience of ultimate reality, as he calls it. And the only way to understand Zen is to by directly, to directly experiencing it. Only by directly experiencing it, it manifests. Otherwise, we may think we got somewhere, we may think we understand something, we may think we know a lot. But what is the life of it? He says, to, to seize the movement of the conscious mind and the gauging of all thoughts and views. Right? The gauging of all thoughts and views. And this is why we hold on to thoughts and views. Because it gauges reality for us. Right? It may not be true, but a very strong sense of it is true. So we hold on to it and we use it to measure to separate, to compare, to judge. So all this means to put aside discrimination, judgmental mind. Maybe take a break from trying to figure things out through thought. It's interesting that the agitated energy that is fueling the mind to create questions and to go search for the answers does not calm down when we meet explanations and theories, even when we actually think we got what we want. Even then, even when answers are given, we find in those answers more fuel to go search for something else or to reignite the original search. Yeah, but what does that mean? And what does that mean? And what does that mean? You know, sometimes people on the mat, in Aikido, beginners, it's very common actually, that they, at the beginning, ask questions. Why do we do this? Why do we do that? Why do we do this? Yeah, and yeah, there are some explanations that are given, but very quickly it becomes, it comes down to just keep your mouth shut and practice. You'll see what you need to see. 
But I want to know now. Or at least I want to convince myself that I know something. And if you give me explanations, I can write it down. But what does that do? You know, all explanations do is they keep us in a constant state of spiritual hunger. Right? We, we're always hungry. Right? We get something, we think we got something, we may feel full for a little while, but then there's the hunger again. Right? Hence the term poverty mind. How often, you know, how often you see that in especially on that end of the spectrum of being a teacher. How often you we encounter as teachers poverty mind, state of being or states of being that are marked by that. How much suffering it brings out. Yet, this is it. All the time, this is it. Now, Dogen says that Zazen is not learning meditation. I mean, we can learn techniques, of course. We teach techniques, we learn techniques. But how do we learn, how do we teach that which is inherent. How do you learn that? Where do we look for it? He says it's simply the Dharma gate of repose and bliss, the practice realization of totally culminated enlightenment, this manifestation of ultimate reality right now. And this is one of the challenges we face in the practice. It cannot be learned. Yet, we are encouraged to study it diligently, day and night. We can't live or arrive, yet we are guided to remain on the path and to keep traveling. How do we understand such basic instructions. How do we understand studying that which cannot be attained or cannot be studied? How do we study when there's nothing to study? How do we go when there is nowhere to go or arrive at? Because that, that's what needs to be merged, reconciled. So then we can study with ease. You know, when Kaoshan was about to leave the monastery after receiving Dharma transmission from his teacher, Dongshan, Dongshan asked him, where are you going? And Kaoshan said, I'm not going to a different place. Dongshan said, you're not going to a different place, but they're still going. And Kaoshan answered, I'm going but not to a different place. It's very clear, isn't it? I am going, but not to a different place. Just this. How do you live and arrive? Akashan did finish a long and exhaustive period of study. And at the end of that study, he did depart. But at that point, it was clear to him that he got nothing from his years of studying with his teacher. And so he was able to go nowhere peacefully. It doesn't make much sense, of course. And yet, there is no other reality. And again, this is what we have to merge. What, what's going on in our heads and what's going on in reality. 
That's where the discrepancy is, not in reality. And what happens with time and practice is that the skull starts to melt, in a way. I don't know if you want that image, but... <laughs> but that's what happens. It, you know, the, 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 it's, we have very hard skulls, but they actually start to, to melt, to fade away. And then the thoughts become like nuisance, right? It's like a loud noise. No more than that. Along with the judgmental thinking. Right? We, we learn to not take it so seriously. I was just talking with Sugiyoko in Dokusan about that. that you know, we, we start to learn that or we, to recognize that the thoughts in the mind is kind of like a toddler, a very whiny, cranky toddler that you, you love, and you're not going to just kick away, but at the same time, you're not going to allow this toddler to do your bills or drive your car. Right? You're going to love this toddler, but you're not going to take it so seriously. So why do we allow that to drive our lives? Why do we take our thoughts so seriously? Well, what are we afraid of? So there is study. There is such a thing we call study. And of course, committed practice is not in question. It's essential. If we want to deepen. But it's a different kind of study. It goes in the opposite direction of any other study. And it's aimed at emptying out through and through. So then the fundamental question is actually put to rest. It quiets it down rather than add more thoughts to thoughts, questions to questions. And besides, it's exhausting to hold on to our ideas about stuff. It's tiring. The thing is, you know, we're, we're, again, I mentioned before that we're not... I don't think we, we are, I don't think we realize to what degree our self-centeredness goes. We are very, very self-centered and self-concerned. And I'm not saying it as a, in a derogatory way at all. I'm just saying it as a fact of life. We're taught to be self-centered. So we have to recognize it. One of the beautiful things about the Sangha, you know, we get together, but we know that we are self-centered. So we come together to recognize that and work together on somehow releasing the grip of our self-centeredness. Right? So we teach ourselves to show up just as we are. To care for others. Not just here, in the Mahasangha too. Larger community. To be more caring. To be less self-concerned. To break through the shell. So we can actually do good. Do good for others. You know, we, we spend so much time and energy thinking and talking about our opinions, our preferences, the story of our lives. And even when it comes down to, to experiencing some level of what we call or what Dogen called ultimate reality, we can still, even with that, create something, become 
maybe even more self-centered. Because now I, I really understand something, right? I got somewhere. I got something maybe others don't. But we chant, encounter with the Absolute is not yet enlightenment. But we have to be careful. That's why this koan is brought up. Now the character in this, in this koan, this story is Tian Ping. And he was on a pilgrimage to study with some, with different Zen masters. And it appears to be that his cup was full as he was traveling around and he wasn't able to or wasn't interested in really learning or studying anything. He was more interested in expressing what he thought he knew about Zen, about Buddhism, about practice. It is said that he attained this turnip Zen and put it in his belly. Everywhere he went, he scornfully opened his big mouth and said, I understand Zen, I understand the way. He also said, do, do not say you understand the Buddhist teachings. I cannot find even a single person who can quote a saying. Of course, you know, it sounds like an example of a blatant arrogance. But, you know, Tian Ping was... He was no novice. He was a, a seasoned practitioner and most likely had extensive knowledge of Buddhism and some practice hours under his belt. He was in the beginning, he wasn't new. So we can't say that his statement was incorrect. The question is, what was he referring to when he said, I understand Zen, I understand the way? What do we mean by, I understand, I got it? What do we mean by that? And what does it do to continuous deepening? How do we get in our own way? Or how easily we get in our own way. You know, the statement, I understand, already reveals a gap between the one who understands and that which is being understood. There's already duality. So if I say, I understand the teachings of non-duality, I'm saying two things. I get it and I have no clue about it. Right? I understand, but I'm clueless. Because the teachings are inherently non-dual. Or point at non-duality. No so how can I say I understand? Ever. To understand, in terms of Buddhist teachings, is to drop away completely. That's all that's, all that's left at that moment, or at that time, of the expression is just the expression. Not a statement. All that's left is the life of that which I claim to understand. So for that, I need to drop away the statement I understand and then express. Or lose myself to the expression. Now, for example, Aikido. Been doing it for a few decades. Right? And... Yet, on the level of embodiment, I can't say I know Aikido. 
I can't say that because it will not be correct. It will be wrong to say that. I don't know. There's only the movement. There's only the embodiment. Nobody knows. Actually, nobody knows anything when it comes to embodiment. So I don't understand Aikido. I breathe it. I live it. I'm lost in the movement to the best of my ability at any given point, which actually never ends. Because as long as I practice, the ability to lose myself deepens. But to lose completely the one who claims to understand because the one who claims to understand gets in the way of embodiment. So it's not the practice partner that we may be practicing with that gets in the way. It's me who gets in the way. I need to drop out. Then all that's left is movement. Of course, constantly adapting and changing and adjusting and merging and flowing, because dropping away is not a one-time deal. It's again and again and again and again, because there is something that does not want to drop away and keeps whining about it and complaining. One of the most common complaints are about my partner in practice. He, blah, 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 she, da, da, da. You know, we have a small section here. Sometimes I walk away, I say, this is a kiddie pool. If you want to talk like that, practice it, go over there. We have a kiddie pool. Because that's what it sounds like. No, I'm fine. I'm doing everything by the book. It's just my partner gets in my way. But that's not what we are practicing, right? Whether it's Aikido or Zen, it's not what we are, it's not what the practice is pointing at. All that's doing is feeding more agitation or giving fuel to the agitated mind, which becomes more and more agitated, and then we're surprised that it doesn't work. Practice doesn't work. We've been doing it for a while, look. So how do we study? How do we read? Right? There's a lot of reading. We just had four sessions of the Vimalakirti Sutra. How do we read koans? How do we read sutras, texts? Maizumi Roshi wrote that in the foreword to the Hekigan Roku, this collection of koans from which this koan comes from, he wrote, there are numerous ways to read a book. Skimming, memorizing, carefully, careful study, quiet reading, reading aloud, reading with the body, reading with the mind, and reality reading. It is this last kind of reading which the Blue Cliff Record requires, or any Zen text or Buddhist text. In this mode, you yourself become that becomes the case. And in doing so, the blue cliff of ancient China stands revealed as your very life right here in this time and place. And this is what is meant by marching, walking with the ancient masters. And that's living tradition. So Zen should be studied this way. Aikido should be studied this way too. So then Osen is the founder of Aikido, right? His Aikido should come to life in our Aikido, in the way we move. 
So there's no need to memorize anything. Sutras, chants, books, all of it. Out the window. Some people don't like when I say that. But I love my books. I'm not obsessed with books. I just love my books. Very common. Well, I don't know of anybody who is obsessed and will admit I'm obsessed. Do you? In fact, when you tell somebody you're obsessed with something and they get very, very, very defensive and angry, you rest your case. Say no more. So to study, a gapless study. Now are we studying like that? Are we open to receive the Dharma? Or do we want to just take it and then bring it into the story-making mechanism and then merge it with that? That's also merging. It's a different kind of merging. And to merge with the Dharma, to study the Dharma and merge with it, is to allow it to penetrate our bones, to allow it to go deeper and deeper and deeper. Never ever say, I got somewhere, I got it, I understand. Live it. 100% live it to the best of your ability every moment. Not what do I understand about the teachings. Am I living the teaching right now? What does it mean? To be a living embodiment of a living manifestation of the teachings. So in this koan, during his pilgrimage, Tian Ping, that's the guy who knew a lot about Zen, went to visit Master Ji Wan and stayed there for a while. So one day Ji Wan saw him from a distance and called him by name, Tsung Yi. And the footnote says, the hook is set. Right there. He was on to him. It's not the first time he saw him. He just realized this, is a, this may be a good opportunity to help the guy. The hook is set. Tianping raised his head. Ji Wan said, wrong. Right there. Wrong. Missed it. So Ping went two or three steps and Zhiyang again said, wrong. Ping stopped, turned around and approached Zhiyang. Now it is said when a master samurai cuts through an opponent, they do it so skillfully that the person has to take two or three steps and then the body split in half. They don't even realize that they are cut in two. Well, I don't know if the image you want, but that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's the way it was. Anyway, this is brought as an example um, for this, because he did not realize, because the level of mastery of, well, this teacher, also his level of being trapped, maybe that, was so high that he didn't even, he was completely oblivious that the hook was set. That Jiwan actually used the sword, used at that time, used the sword of the, the Dharma, sword of wisdom, to cut through with one wrong, the first one. Oh, by calling his name. No, Tian Ping claimed to understand Zen. 
But then when Xi Wang invites him to express it, he has no clue, he's not even aware of it. You understand Zen? Great, show it, live it. What? What just happened? You interrupted my thinking. Go away so I can keep thinking. I have a lot on my mind. And it's all good Dharma stuff. Tenke Denson, who's in our lineage, commented on this and said, Ping doesn't know how to, how to act directly. Why? Because he hasn't gotten out of the cave of intellectual knowledge. When we're trapped in our heads, we're like deaf and blind. Right? And run all over, have no clue, having no clue. The reality comes knocking. Asking us to come out. Deaf and blind. So when he turned around and approached, Jirang said, these two wrongs, so he asked him a question, these two wrongs just now, were they my wrongs or your wrongs? And then the footnote says, the first two arrows were light. This third arrow goes much deeper. And then Hakuin commented on this saying, when a woman calls her maid repeatedly for no apparent reason, it is just to let her husband hear her voice. Hakuin. It's great, right? Just hear me out, I'm here. But Pink can't hear because the voice in his head is a lot louder than any other voice. He's completely in the dark at this point. He doesn't know how to deal with the question. So he crumbles and he says, okay, my wrongs. It's my fault. And this is where the power of intellectual knowledge ends. That's it. How do I deal with it? Let's go back to the book. Let's see if I can find an answer. Were these two wrongs my wrongs or your wrongs? He said mine because he was clueless. And Hakuin commented on this answer and said, what a disgraceful thing to say. Just what the hell do you mean by that? Do you know what you mean by that? We're just saying it to see where it goes. Is there any life in the answer? So again, to that answer, Jirang says, wrong. And at that point, Ping gave up. So Jiwan said, stay here for the summer and wait for me to discuss these two wrongs with you. This is a great example of act of compassion where a teacher expresses endless patience with the student, wanting nothing but to bring the student to awakening. To shatter that shell. Stick around. Maybe it's going to open up. I mean, he could have just sent him away. I think we would have understood. Right? This guy is thick. No chance. Go look somewhere else. But Ping actually left immediately went away. And the footnote to that says, he still resembles a patchwork monk 
He resembles one, but isn't really. He looks like a Zen practitioner. He's got the hat, the right garments, or the right books in his backpack. So then some years later, when he was an abbot of a temple, and actually became an abbot, I don't know if he succeeded. I don't know exactly how this came about. I couldn't find anything. Then he said to his community, when I was first traveling on foot, I was blown by the wind of events at Xi Yuang's place. Twice in a row he said wrong and tried to keep me there over the summer to wait for him to deal with me. Now that's how he interpreted that. And he says, I did not say it was wrong then. When I set out for the South, I already knew that it was wrong. And what he's saying basically is that I know that to go out to search for the Dharma is wrong. That's all he's saying. So I knew I was wrong. So I had nothing, nothing to learn at this place, at this point. So I left. But if he said that to Ji Wang, I was wrong when I set out foot to go travel, look for the Dharma, the answer would have been wrong. Again. Quicksand. You go deeper and deeper and deeper. Why? Because you're trying to use the same mechanism to get out of that mechanism. The footnote says, <clears throat> what can he do about those two wrongs? A thousand wrongs, 10,000 wrongs. Nevertheless, it's all irrelevant. All the more he shows his senility and sad, saddens others. It's clear. Actually, we know when he gave up after hearing those three wrongs, I think he was the closest he ever got to in his life to actually breaking through. Only if it had stayed. Admitting, well, you know what? Maybe I don't know anything. Or maybe I'm willing to put aside everything I think I know. Fine. I want to know. I want to see. Just shut up, bow, go take your seat. That's it. Because then you open up to the Dharma. Instead of expressing what you think you know, sit and examine and ask, can I live it? Can I embody it? Am I embodying it? And about this point, Hakuin said, when he, was, when he gave up, he said, his bow is broken, his arrows are all gone. And yet, his view of himself is not yet forgotten. It doesn't really get more powerful than that, right? He was broken, right? He had no more arrows, no more thoughts, opinions, ammunition. Couldn't deal with it. But he, the view, his view of himself has not yet, was still there, was still active. And it's a shame. It's very common. And what exactly do, do we think that Yuan meant by saying, stay here for the summer and wait for me to discuss these two wrongs with you. What is there to discuss? Tenke Denson says, in Zen there is fundamentally nothing to say by way of explanation. 
This being the case, if someone should suddenly say, I won't give you any explanation, I would say, I'll tell you when you, are, when you have awakened. Right? I won't give you, a, can you give me explanation? And the answer would be, yeah, stick around. Wait until you awaken and then I will give you explanation. Then, of course, you have to ask, where does the explanation come from? If the teacher is asking to stay awakened, then I'll explain. Then you will stop looking for an explanation. And when you stop looking for an explanation, I can explain. The verse says, following followers of Zen, the Zen house like to be scornful. Having studied till their bellies are full, they cannot put it to use. And Tenke said, even if, even if he may have some perception when challenged by someone with clear eyes, he's frozen. That's the encounter which he wants. So he cannot apply what he knows. Master Wutsu said, there is a kind of person who studied Zen like stuffing cakes in a crystal pitcher. It can't be turned over anymore. It can't be cleaned out. And if you bump it, it immediately breaks. If you want to be lively and active, just study leather bag Zen. Even if you smash it down from the highest mountain, it will still never break. It won't burst. It's a great imagery. Would you stuff it on, in, on, put it on? You know, when you stuff something in a crystal ball, a crystal jar, right? You think, well, I'm, I'm protecting it, I'm holding on to it. Yeah, think about how much energy it takes to care for it, how fragile it is. How lamentable, laughable, old Tian Ping. After all, he says, at the outset, it was regrettable to go travel on foot. Wrong, wrong. Ji Yuan's pure wind suddenly melts him. Well, as it turns out, this pure wind didn't really melt him completely. But the point of all this is, or the question is, is it melting us somewhat? Does it cut through us somewhat? Can it help us? Can it wipe away our own clinging so we can open up to the Dharma, so we can put aside our thoughts, opinions, comparisons, stories? You know, there's a saying, knowing it by birth is best, knowing it by learning is next. Knowing it by birth. And that's really what we're studying. We're studying to get to a point that we can trust, that we know it by birth. And the amazing thing about that is that when we recognize it and we trust it, we are free to study for the rest of our lives. We really do apply ourselves completely to study. But it's a whole kind of different study. It's not the same. Especially when it comes to, to Zen or Aikido. When it comes to embodiment practices. And Zen has to be embodied. Or it's a waste of time. 
embodied at work, embodied at home, embodied in between, on the way to, on the way back, all the time. Practice continues forever, and then deepening continues forever.